All right, let's get going tonight. I titled this evening, The Quest for Validation. This is a title that came to me this morning. Um, I knew the text we wanted to deal with from the Sermon on the Mount, but as I was running and praying this morning, I felt the Father begin to round out a few thoughts, and I wanted to open with some ideas and some thoughts before I even read the text. You know we're gonna be in the Sermon on the Mount, so that's no shocker. What might be surprising to you is that I really do feel like we're about to land this thing. I know that we haven't covered every word in the Sermon on the Mount. We probably haven't even covered every concept, but I felt that this morning as well, like the Lord saying, you can let them know this is, we're, we're landing soon. I don't know that it's um, next week or the next, but we're right there. And so I am praying about where we go next, and I hope for some, actually some feedback from you guys of what you're looking for and how you'd like to go forward. Um, so keep that in mind. The quest for validation is an idea that I have um, wrestled with and worked with for a long time in my own life because I went into ministry really young. I was um, in high school when I first preached my first message. Um, part of that is the fact I was raised in a pastor's home, evangelist's home, had a lot of church connections. It was quite easy if you were gonna go into ministry to just get started as soon as you decided you were gonna go into ministry. I come from a part of the world too. Um, in the we were, I was basically raised in the mid south and very rural. I was hours from most urban areas, and so we always seemed twenty or thirty years behind the rest of the country as far as sort of development. And uh, and so it really wasn't that uncommon. Uh, I mean, life was a little slower, is my point, and it was a little. Um, it was a lot less hustle and bustle, and so things were a little more. Um, church for, for people in church, we, we sort of maximized the amount of times we went during the week because we were sort of also from a Christian circle that didn't do anything else. You know, most everything else was a sin, but you could go to church. And so I came up going to church because church was the one thing you could do that was, you know, approved. Um, and you needed a lot of speakers. You need a lot of people that could preach. And so if you were a young man that didn't get up and just pass out in front of people that could put three cogent words together and quote a scripture, you could have a youth service. Um, so I did a lot of those, man, and went into ministry very, very young, and, and I always felt the need to validate myself because I was, I was always in pastor's churches that were 20, 30 years older than me. Um, I was always around ministers who had been doing this forever, and, and I took my lumps, and I tried to learn style and, and tried to learn... Um, homiletics and you know everything without going to seminary and college my school was just watching and listening and I had done that my entire life but I went into ministry then really searching for validation for years validating my abilities and so I didn't when you don't know what you're doing you copy someone that does and so I spent a long time copying preachers um, copying styles even copying whole sermons because you know why not you're at a you're in a church at the end of a gravel road on a Sunday night and there's 20 people there and no one's recording, you might as well pop out the sermon you memorized that somebody else gave, you know, it's not as if someone's ever heard it before. And so I did that for a long time, a lot of years of that and working, working, working towards validation in ministry, always hoping um, through style that I could get someone to say, hey, you're doing a good job. Um, and then jobs and Money, married young, raising kids young, validation for me 
became certain levels of success to prove to people that you weren't wrong or that you weren't too young to get married or that you could uh, preach. Uh, th these are just my validations. These are the things I work through. I can only talk about what I work through, but you have yours. If you're honest, that's, this is my theory, is that you have some that if you are honest, you worked through trying to be validated. You were smart enough for your career. You were, you were good enough to have that job. You should do what, they, what you're able to do. Uh, whatever your validate, validation is, whatever you've worked towards, I, I theorize that all of us have them. Um, where we land is different, but we have them. For some, it's I gotta make this much money. For some, if I could just get that job, if I could move to this place, if I could own that house, if I could get that deal done, whatever. Um, why do we do this? Do we have an insecurity issue? Do we just believe in what other people say about us? That for me has been the big quest. And it took me years in ministry to get to where it was. The validation enough was just hearing the voice of the Father and believing that I had something to say and maybe someone would like that and maybe they wouldn't, but I didn't have to be approved by someone else. And, Validation wasn't crowds, because I chased that animal too. Went into pastoral ministry and then chased growth. Um, church growth, church growth, church growth, which I think is, I think the church growth movement the church has experienced in America has been a tool of the devil, meant to get us focused on building stuff uh, instead of people. And man, I, I chased that devil's candy for a while too on how to build, how to build, how to build, how to build, how to build. What are we going to do to get bigger and get a bigger footprint and get wider? And, um, and I don't know that I'm free from that, but I'm, I'm saying that I did it, didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I did a lot of things for validation. It's to say, if we could just get this size, if you could add this extra service, if you could get this bigger building, this would validate all the things you said was right about the gospel, would validate what you've been preaching, would validate what you believe in. Okay, so that's just ministry. You insert your own in there. Why do we do this? Why do we do it physically, financially, mentally? Because we do it in all of those areas. We don't all do it in all of those areas, but we do. Some people have to validate things with their physical man, the way they look. Um, we have to validate it with the money that we make. Um, I think it's because we chase stuff. However, in the last 12, 15 years, it got worse in America. I, I'm not being melodramatic. It really did get worse because social media blew everything up where it brought everything into your face and forced you to at least turn away or get involved in stuff that you never would have been involved in or even seen or even known was a real thing before. And then a dozen years or so when the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world started giving us like buttons and retweet buttons and algorithms. Then we had news shoved into our face all the time, all the time, all the time. And we had validation issues, validation issues. You post a picture on Instagram, how many people liked it? Ooh, not enough people liked it. What's wrong with me? Ooh, look at how many people like this person's picture or uh, retweeted this person's tweet or look at how many, and, and ministry did it too. Look at how big their Facebook page. I'll never forget, I did a conference in like 20, 13, somewhere in the Midwest, and I was invited in to speak in a day session, and I remember walking into the room to speak, and one of the other speakers was there with his PR team, which was like three people, and I remember they came up and shook my hand and said, oh, hey, what's your web address, and they're going through all this stuff, and the guy goes, what's your Facebook page? This was when Facebook was like taking off, and, and I remember telling him, and he went over 
pulled out his iPad, went over and said, oh, you have such an, this many followers. And then they moved on to the next room for the next speaker. And I hadn't even spoke yet. I thought, oh, how about that? Not worth, not worth sticking around to listen to that. Now I know, extreme example, but not really. Kind of just like a real example. Just like what usually happens behind the scenes just sort of happened in your face because, well, you're not really worth it. So what's it really gonna matter? Um, if you don't think you don't turn around when you speak and try to validate yourself, you've probably never spoken. Um, and, and I hope I've grown up since then. I hope whoever with that guy holding that iPad's grown up too. Um, anyway, the point being, um, what has happened is that we have been pressured to be validated. And that's put us on a quest. We're searching for it to try to figure out if we're worth it. Now, you know what I'm going to say. You are valuable. You're valid. God's made you worth it. What you might not expect is that I actually think Jesus covered this in the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't mean he barely covered it. I mean, he covered the snot out of it. But what happened is we pick the stuff apart a lot. And we take it and we use it as a principle, stick it on a bumper sticker. And sometimes you don't need to do that. Sometimes you need to realize he's making a point and 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 they appear on the surface to be unrelated. But if you'll just see if there's a thread, what you'll do is get to the bottom of it and go, oh, wow, Jesus is trying to say something. Maybe I should pay attention. And why did he spend so much time on this? And I don't mean he's standing there thinking, ooh, there's going to be Twitter someday and there's going to be Facebook someday and people are going to want bigger houses someday. No, I think that he addresses it because no matter what culture you live in, no matter what the technology is, no matter what the economy looks like, we all have this common thread running through us that we need to be validated. Even first century people, without our economies and our phones and our technology, they needed to be validated. People just need to know that they matter. And because it's not obvious that you matter, because let's be honest, it's not obvious that you matter. Think about that. I know we think it is. It's obvious people matter. No, it's not obvious that people matter. There's a lot of you out there. There's a lot of us out there. It's not obvious that we matter. And because it's not obvious that we matter, we gravitate to whatever makes us feel like we matter. And then that wins our affections. And that wins our attentions. And it does it subtly, but it does it powerfully. And breaking that bond might be the very core of Christianity. The more I'm walking down this road, it might be the very core. It's why I keep saying to you, part of what we do as believers in Christ is we die. What are we dying to? We're not just dying to sin. We all love that. We love to say we're dying to sin, but then we go out and sin. So go, well, are you dead to it or not? But maybe what we're really dying to is the dependency on this system. And we are dying to it being what validates us and it being what makes us feel relevant. And if we could die to that, then we might actually resurrect to something else and that would be worth looking at. Therefore, let me read a few verses. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. I assuredly say to you, they have their reward. 
Um, these are a set of verses that I think our sort of social media world completely disagrees with. And what I mean by that is social media does not agree with the opening verse there, verse one, which says, take heed that you don't do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Are you kidding? Why do I have this phone in my pocket if not to take a picture of every good thing that I do and every fantastic thing that I do so that I can share it with the world? Because if you don't let people know you did it, how's anyone going to know it was done, right? I mean, if you do a charitable deed and you don't broadcast it, then how do people know that charity happened? I mean, shouldn't you at least post a pithy comment about how you helped that homeless guy today? And, and I'm not telling you this so that you'll think I'm a hero. I'm just telling you this so that you'll realize they're all around us all the time. And we all know you're actually telling us this because you want us to know that you're a hero. And that last part was how you justified your quest for validation, which was so that people would realize, wow, what a good dude. He really helped somebody out. It's really easy to spot it. It's just, oh, it's super easy to spot it on everybody else. That's not going to do us any good. That's, whole, that's the speck in the eye, plank in the eye. If you can see it in them, odds are it's because you've spotted it in you a time or two. And so when you look at verses like this, yes, it's easy to look out, but don't do that. Fight that urge tonight of looking at your neighbor and going, oh yeah, that's so-and-so's Facebook post. I saw that. I need to send him tonight's sermon so he'll know that that's not the way things are. The moment that crosses your mind, just slam the brakes on that and start over and go, no, 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 this isn't the way this works. God didn't write this so that I could spot brother so-and-so's problems. This is so that I'll pay attention that I don't have to be validated for what I do, that things don't have to be announced. What, do I, what I think Jesus is doing here, let's start here in the next screen. Jesus contrasts an internal reward that's found only in the Father with an external reward found in the crowd. Will you go back? Go back to, yeah, okay. I wanted to go back because I want you to think about that statement. Jesus contrasts an internal reward found. We're going to go back to that screen if you like in a second. Contrast the internal reward found only in the Father with an external reward found only in the crowd. Look at that happen. Don't do stuff before men. That's the crowd. Otherwise, you don't have a reward from your Father in heaven. Sometimes we black out in these verses because all we try to do is figure out the theology of it. Don't get lost in the theology of it. Theology is the study of God. This is how we're trying to determine sort of our, our salvation. And so we read stuff like 6.1, take heed, you don't do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward. Oh boy, this is a verse trying to tell us that we get rewarded if we do good. Okay, in grace, we don't get rewarded if we do good. Therefore, this verse isn't for me, right? Um, I get that a lot, man. I get people saying that, like, we got to be careful with verses like this because Jesus is talking to us under the old covenant. All right. Will you put that on pause tonight? Okay, just don't do that. I, and I, and I, I promise that I'll show you why. Okay? First of all, the first reason why is that Jesus is a better teacher than that. He's not trapped back there like, you know, no one else is ever going to hear this. I'm just going to preach to them like they're all in the old covenant. And then here we come 2,000 years later and we're totally lost because Jesus didn't know how to teach to us. Um, I don't, that's not the case. So don't look at this as I'm not, it, I have no reward from the father means God doesn't bless me if I don't do this. 
I want you to think of it in these terms. There's the internal and there's the external. There's the visible and there's the invisible. We're not talking about our earthly father. We're talking about our heavenly father. Therefore, we're talking about our spiritual father. And if that's the case, now go back, Brian, to that next one. He contrasts what's on the inside, which is only in the father, with an external, which is found in the crowd or the world. That word openly, which was at the end of that text, go back one more time. I know we're bouncing back and forth. Your charitable deeds may be done in secret so that your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. All right, and what we see at the end of this verse is if I'll just be quiet with my charity and be private with my charity, God will make sure everybody knows what I'm doing. And this is the part of the verse that I hear people love to quote. That, hey, if you'll just do your stuff in private, God will reward you openly. Why are we so excited about getting an open reward? What is it that makes us, even though we, and we go, well, I got scripture for it. God rewards me openly. But do we have scripture for it? Back to that next one. The word openly, which ends these verses, is not found in the Greek, in the earliest manuscripts. It's a scribal edition that was added as the scribes started taking the Greek to Latin. They added the word openly, and I think they might have added the word openly for the very reason we get excited about the word openly. Because at least in the end, people are going to know we're a good guy. You know, it's just not fair that we do all these good deeds and people don't see them. Shouldn't in the end, God kind of stands you up in front of everyone and goes, look, see what they did and none of you knew it. And then everyone can applaud or at least we can feel good about it. But the truth is, I think it's that we just really want our reward openly, which in my opinion, defeats the purpose of the father rewarding you in the first place. Why do you need the father to reward you in here if at the end he's going to change the rules and go, okay, yeah, but what I really wanted to do was show you out in front of everybody else. So the truth is, is I don't think that this has anything to do with being rewarded openly. And Jesus says, don't let your right, your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's a famous statement that essentially means you don't have to broadcast everything. I heard of a uh, couple of Muslim teenage girls who had been in a, in a Muslim high school. They were in their 20s during this interview, so this was, it had been 10 years or so since they'd been in school. And someone was asking them about charity, about Muslim charity. And I was kind of perked up, because I don't hear a lot, I don't study Muslim ideas. And one of the girls said, I'll never forget there was a scripture that would always get quoted to us to not let our right hand know what our left hand was doing. She said, and our, our teacher in school taught us that we were to always leave the house with cash in our pocket in case we ran into someone on the street that needed help. But we were to never look at the money when we pulled it out of our pocket. You were to just grab one and hand it to them with your hand closed so that you never knew what your left hand was doing, so that you never knew how much you were giving. So you, it, maybe it was a five, maybe it was a 10, maybe it was a 20, but you just gave it. And I thought, you know, actually, kind of a clever take on what Jesus says. It's, it's kind of a physical way to live it out, which is I'm literally not gonna let my right hand know or my eyes know what my left hand is doing. But I think the teacher was teaching it that way for the reason that when you influence the giving, 
the right hand knows what the left hand is doing. Sometimes we only project that outward. Don't let the others know what you're doing, but it's not don't let your neighbor know what you're doing. It's don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. It's just kind of an interesting illustration. I don't know of a better way to illustrate that than maybe give, but don't keep your hand grasped on it. How do we do that? Well, that's, that's up to every single one of us. Now, where this chapter goes next is fascinating. Remember what I said earlier, we take a section and we sort of put it on a bumper sticker and then um, think it stands by itself. I'm not going to read all these. I want you to do that at home. Um, what you saw were the first four verses of Matthew 6, where Jesus talks about giving. Verses 5 to 9, 5 to 8, Jesus talks about praying. And then in verses 16 to 18, Jesus talks about fasting. All right? Giving, praying, fasting. And here's what they sound like. When you give... Don't do it so other people can see you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who pray out on the street corner so that everybody can hear their prayers. When you fast, don't fast so that people can tell you're fasting by the way you look and by the way you talk and by the way you act. There's some commonality there. You catch them, that commonality? Look at this trio. Jesus takes a trio of activities, giving, praying, fasting. He does it for a reason, to illustrate how easy it is to do these things to be seen of other people. I know this because in every one of them, he uses the same warning. When you give, don't give so people will know it. When you pray, don't pray so people can hear you. When you fast, don't fast so people know you're fasting. What's the common theme? Don't let other people know what's up. Why is this such a big deal to Jesus? Why does he care if, it's, if people know what's up? None of these things are bad. But they become a show. And the show is alluring. And the show becomes hard to resist. Each time he lists an activity, he adds a warning against that private action going into public action. And w- when you give, when you pray when you fast. Now we legalize all of these things and that's what makes all of these things end up becoming detrimental to us. We've legalized giving in the church and by legalizing I mean we've made a legal amount that you have to give as a Christian or a church member that if you don't give you are somehow outside of God's will. Um, We do much the same with prayer. We do the same with fasting. I think all of these need to be Part of your life through the new covenant. Listen to the Holy Spirit for doing them and listen to the Holy Spirit for how to do them and why to do them. And if you don't hear from the Holy Spirit in some of these, don't do them. I've t- I told people this with giving for years. It's like, why do you feel an obligation to give a certain percentage? You're not a Jew living under the old covenant and I'm not a priest from the tribe of Levi who needs your tithe in order to survive. You have a new priest. If you have a new priest, then giving changes. Prayer changes. Fasting changes. So follow the Holy Spirit on what that looks like. Jesus' warning is not against doing them. 
Jesus is not commanding we do them. Jesus' warning is that when we do them, we don't do them for the attention that comes along with doing them. All right? So that the private action doesn't go public. Remember the segments? Okay, so you got giving, praying, fasting. I'll show you a common thread. Don't do them so people can see you. Here's the next one. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And yes, they stand alone. You can take this little set of verses and teach a pretty good lesson. And your, your, the heartbeat of your lesson can be verse 21. Wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. But I propose to you that Jesus is still in that river. Giving, praying, fasting, storing, whatever you value. He's, he's still pulling those things together. So here's what this one looks like. Jesus This is next in sequence. Next, Jesus gives another warning. This time of putting up treasure in the natural realm rather than putting up treasure in the heavenly realm. Within context and contextually means the rest of the stories we've already read. That's what we've been doing. Contextually, this is not an anti-savings account stance. Jesus going, don't put up any money down here on the earth. Instead, put up your money in heaven. Because the context demands, our translation demands some context. And in context, what Jesus is telling us is it's a complement to the previous part of the story, the giving, praying, fasting trio. If you bank your rewards in the natural where people can see them, I'm going to leave the parenthetical out for now. If you bank your rewards in the natural where people can see, you bank nothing in the realm that really matters. Let's put the parenthetical in. If you bank your rewards in the natural where people can see, the crowd and their compliments are the moth and the rust that doth corrupt. In the realm of the natural, when you bank what you are in the realm of the natural, I promise you, you learn to rely on the validation of the natural. And what does the validation of the natural do? It's the moth and the rust that corrupts what's valuable to you. And that's why you can't get enough of it. And it's why you've always got to come up with something new. And it's why you keep going back into the well of public validation because, and this is why a lot of my ministry friends are burning out and ready to quit. And guys aren't looking at the ministry as a vocation. They're looking at the ministry as a job. Big difference, by the way. The vocation is what you do with your life. The job is what you punch a clock for. So offer a lot of pastors a better job and they're suddenly out of the ministry. Why? Because, and I can only talk about pastors. I can only talk about ministers. Sorry if I don't have better illustrations. It's just kind of the thing I know. Because a lot of us in ministry work really, really hard to store up our treasure in the natural realm where things can validate our ministries. What happens to that stuff? Moth and rust doth corrupt. I don't just mean your money gets eaten up by moths. I mean, it's, it's an allegory. Stuff starts to wear away at your joy. The shine's off the penny. It's just not worth it anymore. We keep chasing bigger and better and more love and more acceptance and more openness and whatever we chase. And what we're running after 
could have been avoided if we had just gotten on our knees and washed some feet. So Jesus contrasts in the side of the same topic. He hasn't changed the subject. I don't think so. When you give, when you pray, when you fast, watch out for the crowd. Don't do it for them. Your treasure's gonna be, your heart's gonna be where your treasure is. Because if you put it up in the natural where everybody can find it, oh, they'll find it all right. And they'll pick it to death because the moth and the rust doth corrupt. Or you could lay your treasure up in the heavenlies, in the invisible room. How do, Paul, how do you know this is right? Because every story in this chapter has been visible, invisible. When you give, make it invisible. If it's visible, you don't get your reward. When you pray, go into your closet, pray privately. If it's out in the street like the hypocrites do, this is a word Jesus uses, like the hypocrites do, then everybody knows you pray. He goes, when you fast, clean yourself up so don't look like you're dying. So because of maybe somebody won't know what's going on. This is why I think it's very difficult to have public giving ceremonies, public prayer meetings, and group fasting. The spirit of them runs into a problem in Matthew 6 because everybody knows what I'm up to. And you kind of get some of your reward. And have you noticed that when you get that reward, moth and rust doth corrupt? Like, it ain't worth as much. <laughs> There's something there in the realm of the spirit that's deeper. That's the thread that Jesus is on. And there's more. Matthew 6, 24. No one could serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be loyal to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and man. I hope you can see that when you lay them out that way, giving, praying, fasting, treasure, public, private, public, private, public, private, earthly, heavenly, this verse makes sense. No man can serve two sides. Public, private, public, private, Jesus is on the same theme. He hasn't changed sermons. He just keeps changing stories to tell the same message. No man can have it both ways. No man can serve two masters. What's going to happen is he's going to hate one and love the other, or he's going to be loyal to the one and despise the other. And man, if that ain't true, you chase the natural validation. The things of the spirit seem too lofty. You chase the validation of the spirit, the things of the world begin to lose appeal. When you try to marry those two concepts and shove them together, which I think we've tried to do, we've tried to borrow some of those tactics and activities and said, well, we can have it both ways. The Lord can use anything. So the Lord will move through this. I think it's where we realize eventually that the moth, it's moth eaten and rusty. And we go, something's not right. And it's because Jesus warned us, you can't serve God and mammon. Now, right here, the fact that he uses the phrase mammon, once again, causes us to dis sort of divorce the context, take it out, put it over here as if it's its own sermon. But I want to present to you that I think that's the wrong way to teach this. Jesus is still on the same idea. All right? And here's why I believe so. You must choose your loyalties. You can't serve two masters. Illustrated in this particular example as God and mammon. Mammon, a word that means riches. Now what's the context of the verse? Contextually, the treasure is the approval and the validation of the crowd. 
You can't find rest in God when you search for validation elsewhere. You'll never be able to properly serve two masters if you're looking for the giving, the praying, the fasting, the storing up treasure in the realm where people know what you're doing because you'll never be able to serve the master where you give in secret, pray in secret, fast in secret, store up treasures in heaven because they're two entirely different ways of doing business. They're two gods and you're one person. And so the pull, the, what's being asked of us as believers in Matthew 6 is the same thing the whole chapter. Jesus isn't random firing out different ideas. He's given us the same idea. Watch out. All of that would be well and good. And honestly, if that was it, I might even be wrong. I mean, I might be just totally off base. Like, you're just reading into what's not there. How do you know Jesus is threading this? Because it's not the end of the story. And so as you keep reading, here's what you come to next. Matthew 6, 25. Therefore, big, flashing, neon, bright lights ought to be circling the word therefore in your heart. Why in the world would Jesus drop in a therefore? Because he wants you to figure out what it's there for. There are previous information. By the way, look at what verse you're in. 25. Where do we start? <laughs> verse 1. I'll walk you through it. I won't, I won't read it. Giving, four verses. Prayer, four verses. Fasting, three verses. Treasure, three verses. A little diversion on the lamp of the body, which I was going to teach, but it's not really a diversion. I, we've already taught it. We taught it in another lesson. But it's... The outlook. Shift your gaze. Then a verse on not serving God and riches. That's been the whole chapter. All this duality. Public, private, public, private, public, private, visible, invisible. Master, God, mammon. Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to put on. Is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow, they don't reap, but they still gather into barns. Yet your heavenly father, they don't gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Here's the question. This is what we've been waiting for. That was the whole chapter. Are you not of more valuable than that stuff? He finally gets to the point. Illustration, 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 illustration. Therefore, what are you freaked out about? You don't belong to this system. You're not trying to please this system. You're not trying to be validated by this system. So why are you leaning on this system? They're supposed to tell you you're good looking. They're supposed to tell you you're rich. They're supposed to provide for your tomorrows. They're supposed to lean to your way of thinking. You're supposed to be a part of their system. No, your father takes care of the birds that don't even know how to take care of themselves. Your father clothes the field that doesn't worry about clothing itself. Don't you think you're worth more than birds and flowers? Why would God leave you hanging and take care of sparrows? What a culminating question by Jesus. Are you not more valuable? We search for validation in areas that we do not 
know our own value. Let me just stay there for a second. We search for validation in areas in which, it would be a better way to say this, we search for validation in areas in which we do not know our own value. That's why we're seeking value from somebody else. So I keep looking for validation, looking for validation because I don't know what I'm worth. Looking for validation, looking for validation because I don't know what I'm worth. Now we warned kids about this 30 years ago. We went, listen, young lady, don't try to go find your validation with those boys. That boy is going to tell you that you're the prettiest thing in the world. He's going to hurt you. You're, you, are, you are your father's child. You are your mother's child. You don't need some boy to validate you. Good, good advice. Good advice. But now, <laughs> if you wait for that, you're waiting way too long to give the validation speech. Now it probably needs to sound something like this. And we all probably messed this up because none of us knew what we were doing. But now it's going to need to sound like this. That little button you push, where you go like, 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 and you put your stuff up there, that's a dopamine hit. And all it's doing is giving you another hit in here. I love this feeling. People think I'm something. Look at me. How do you do this? Why don't people like me? Why does everybody hate me? Right? So true. So true. And, and the, the scary thing is that we hand, I think it was the, I, I think it was the Facebook, not Facebook, um, maybe it was Instagram back in like 14 or 15, when he, I think when the CEO stepped down, handed it to the next guy, I'm going to mess this story up because I didn't prepare this, but this is off the top of my head. But I think it was him that said, we didn't realize what we were doing when we put the like button, we handed a loaded gun to a four-year-old. And so we we handed technology to a generation and went, okay, go have fun so mom and dad can watch TV. Here, have fun so we can eat in peace. And then dopamine hit, dopamine hit, dopamine hit, dopamine hit. Which, by the way, happens when, you, when ladies, when you read a romance novel or when a man looks at pornography. Dopamine hit, dopamine hit, dopamine hit, dopamine hit. Value, 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 false value, false value, false value, wear me out. Why am I depressed? Why is the world going to hell? Why is everybody so mean? I hate life. These are not, these are not separate topics. 2,000 years ago, Jesus saw it coming. I don't mean predicted social media. I don't mean he predicted technology. He knew our hearts. He knew our need for validation. So he went, don't get it from your neighbor. Don't get it from your friends. Don't get it from the media. Don't get it from your classmates. Don't get it from your coworkers. There's something better. Are you not more valuable than you realize? Who cheated you on the value scale? Get back to realizing that your father loves you, that this is provided for you. The quest for value can end if we'll just ex answer these questions. Jesus asked the question, because he expects us to answer it. I, I was talking to Noah before the service tonight that one of the things we overlook a lot of times in the Bible is that God is constantly asking questions of men. The Bible is full of God showing up with, and he asks something. And then he doesn't even always wait for an answer. It's just you're supposed to be doing this. You're supposed to be asking yourself this question. So a good question to ask is, what's my value? Well, you can see your value through the eyes of your loving Father. And you can see your value through the sacrifice of the cross. 
And it's why I keep trying to bring you back to the foolishness of the cross, as Paul called it. Because at the cross, you realize great love. You realize your own death has occurred. You realize that there's a possibility of a resurrection. As your value goes up, then your need to be validated by those around you. People that don't care about you. People that don't determine your value. Well, I think that'll go down. As your value in Him goes up, your need to be validated by people that don't matter to your situation will actually start to descend. Raise the value of the room you go in. Raise the value of the people you know. Raise the value in, the, in, the, in your family members, in your spouse, in your children. Keep raising the value because if there's not the proper value, they're going to look for that hit somewhere else. And it's not our, just our kids. Starts there. And maybe tragically we already missed it. And we're going to play catch up in a dangerous way. Our suicide rates are going up. Our levels of clinical depression are going up. Our levels of social anxiety are going up. And they're going up in younger and younger and younger kids. Kids that have no reason to be this scared, this discouraged, this depressed, this suicidal. They haven't even done anything yet in the world. They haven't faced anything yet in the world. And yet all around them chaos coupled with the worst possible coupling, chaos, and I'm insignificant to change it. And you give me chaos and no hope of getting out and there's nothing left but death. And that's why I'm a big fan of the gospel because I believe there is good news that it doesn't have to end right there, that there can be transformation for your personal chaos. This is why I'm done trying to change the world. We got to quit trying to create world changers with our young people and get them to change their world. Stop it with this business of trying to change out here. Get busy changing something here. Start with your own personal value. Cut off the systems of validation, the quests for validation everywhere. Yes, you might even have to cut them off. You might even have to literally cut them off and go, I'm giving. I'm, I'm. You want to talk about fasting? How about we fast from the input of the validation of people that can't validate you? And cut that off from our lives. Maybe not just for three days. Maybe permanently in some respects as the Holy Spirit directs. And I think, he, I think that might be a good place to start. One more thought. I just want to read out on this last section. Let's take you all the way out of chapter 6. Listen to the rest of this story. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? This is kind of a bad translation in the Greek. There's really... There's sort of an ambiguous phrase in the Greek right here. One cubit to his stature. That's like saying how many of you by thinking can add 18 inches to your height. It's kind of a weird statement. It's because the word in the Greek is very similar to the word for years to your life. So Jesus more contextually tight says how many of you by worrying could live a year longer? Which makes a lot more sense because he's been talking about life, not height. So why are you going to worry about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They don't toil. They don't spin. They don't work. 29. And I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory didn't look like one. He's the richest guy in the world. You want to talk about social validation? He didn't look as good as the lilies of the field because they keep coming back every day and he just died. So which road do you want to take? Where, where your youth is renewed, where your spirit is renewed, or the, the road of the natural. If God clothes the grass of the field, today it is, and tomorrow it's thrown into the oven. Huh. What a statement. 
Look at verse 30. Today the grass is in the field, tomorrow it's in the oven. Why would you care if today it's in the field and tomorrow it's in the oven? Why take care of it? It's just going to be dead tomorrow. I mean, that's how I would treat it. I mean, I'm that way at the end of the summer when my grass is dying. I'm like, I mean, it's going to be dead next week. I'm not going to mow it again. <laughs> right? <laughs> I see somebody else has done that too. It's, gonna, it's already turning brown. I'm not going to mow it again. I mean, who cares? And yet Jesus says, today it is, tomorrow it's in the oven. What? If God cares about the grass... Wouldn't he much more clothe you, O you of little faith? By the way, man, verse 30 is unheralded. That's a verse that says God's not going to throw you in the oven. Get this going into the oven bit off your mind. He loves you, man. He's taking care of you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to clothe you, O you of little faith. And, and then these last few verses. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear after all these things? The Gentiles seek. That's the world. That's the natural system. Your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Jesus lands the plane of the sixth chapter of the center of the mount here. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, his justice, because God's justice, God's justice is a justice that isn't always promoted by the natural world. This lines up with the context of the rest of this chapter. All this stuff's going to be added to you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Lock that one in your brain. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Why are you losing your mind about tomorrow? Tomorrow will have enough worries for itself. Let the sun come up on tomorrow. Deal with tomorrow's worries when tomorrow gets here. Realize your value today, who you are today. Don't let the world overwhelm you. I have a lot more and I have no more. I have no more in that we're at the end of the chapter. I've said a lot of stuff. I know the connections take some work. They take, they take you to take the scriptures to places maybe you haven't before. Um, I had a lot more to say because I think that there's, I think there's an attack on our, on our validation systems and our spirit and our physical man and our mental man. But there doesn't, we don't have to lose. This isn't shocking God. This hour that we're in, which by the way is unlike any in the history of the world, yes, granted. Technologically, the world's never been here. Pandora is out of the box. We're never going backwards, by the way. So stop standing in the world and going, I'll tell you, we ought to stop this. This needs to end. We need to go back. Forget it. Technology never goes backwards. Nobody invents the wheel and then goes, that's eh, a bad idea. <laughs> we should have been blocks. That'll work better. We don't go backwards. So we are where we are. We go forward in Christ. We go forward in technology. We go forward in the world we're in. Jesus has already given us the template. Don't rely on the stuff. Find your value elsewhere. I want you to do the same thing. And I think you do. I really don't. A lot of times I don't teach these lessons just for this room. Although I know the room benefits. There's a lot of people that are, that are starving and they're hungry and they're searching. They're looking for stuff. Um, a message called the quest for validation. That's a purposeful title. It's the kind of thing that somebody goes, okay, I'll give this one one shot. I've tried everything else. And maybe it doesn't, isn't life-changing. Who knows? I got, a, I got a message from a guy in California last week that said, I found you through a second party. He said, I watched it. Something happened in me. Something clicked. He said, I watch three sermons a day now. He said, my life is transforming. I'm not crazy. This was his words. He goes, I'm not crazy. God is this good. Yeah. He said, it, it showed me that God is this good. I said, that's why we do it. 
So I know you don't need to know that your validation doesn't come through stuff, but you, you might need reminded. There might be somebody else who needs to hear it for the very first time. And they need to hear it a hundred times after that. And so ask yourself this question. Are you valuable? And in what ways do you not know it? Father, I thank you. I thank you that while you make things so complex in some ways, this stuff is like just this, this long meandering river. But when we get our eyes on you, it starts to get simple. It starts to like open up. And we start to see the, rib the ribbon that runs through these stories that lands at the cross. Thank you for this very succinct question you ask in the Sermon on the Mount. Are you not valuable? And help me to remember to ask myself that question from time to time. And to enforce and reinforce that in my wife and my daughter and my son and in the church groups that you've put in front of me to show value because I can't value them the way you do. But we can try. In Jesus' name, amen.